Hey, everybody. Can you do me a quick favor? If you like the conversations that we're sharing here on Plucking Up, or if the show has motivated or just comforted you through your own pluckups, can you please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen? It'll encourage more people to tune in, and I really appreciate it. So grateful that you are a part of the Plucking Up community. You're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders about their mistakes and wrong turns, but more importantly, about how they moved on and up to build a life of purpose and passion and impact and to inspire others to do the same. I'm your host, Liz Bohannon. Pluckies, I am so excited to be back here in your ears in this brand new year. I hope that you all have had lovely holiday, even though that probably seems like a long time ago now. And even though it was probably a little weird, quiet, I hope that you had some time to just reflect and connect, hopefully with some loved ones near and probably far. I had a very apropos ending to 2020. I actually spent Christmas Eve in quarantine away from my entire family after a nice little surprise COVID exposure. Made it my entire pandemic. Like I said, my pandemic, we're all, (laughs) we all have our personal pandemic experiences. But honestly, probably one of my most precious memories that I have from Christmas that honestly will probably stay with me for my whole life is sitting in my bedroom and having my four-year-old come and he would sit on the other side of my bedroom door every night that I was in quarantine and we would do our little bedtime routine and bedtime chat just on the other side of the door from one another. So if nothing else, it was like very on brand for 2020 and I got a negative COVID test for Christmas. (laughs) Literally, it's kind of amazing. So during that time of being quarantined, you know, I'm thinking about season two of the Plucking Up podcast and how excited I am to be back with you. You guys, we had some big dreams and I'm really excited to say that one of our big dreams totally came to fruition with our first guest. She doesn't really need an introduction, but we're going to do the thing. Ariana Huffington is our first guest for the season. She is the founder and the CEO of Thrive Global, and she's the founder of The Huffington Post. She's the author of 15 books, casually, and she's been named by Time Magazine as one of the world's most 100 influential people, one of Forbes' most powerful women, and Thrive Global, her company, is actually a leading behavior change tech company that is aiming to change the way that we work and that we live, and she is on a mission to end the fact that we see burnout and exhaustion as this just kind of like price we pay for being a human. Y'all can't imagine my delight when Ariana agreed to come on this show and specifically to talk about her pluckups, and she did not disappoint you guys. I'll be honest, I was really nervous to interview Ariana 
you know, she's wicked smart and she's super successful. And then <laughs> she turns on her video and it looks like something out of Vogue magazine. You know, she's in this office and it's perfectly styled and she's perfectly styled and looks like so put together. And, you know, I just like immediately pit out. So I'm nervous about that. But then also, honestly, the more successful someone is, the more nervous I am that they're going to be in like... <laughs> for lack of better terms, PR BS mode. You know, kind of all the highlights, all the pretty stories, whatever I want to share. That did not happen in this episode. Ariana was so honest with the really hard and challenging parts of her story with a lot of rejections. I'm just going to tell you, I made a lot of assumptions before this podcast episode and before I got to meet her. And she really just surprised me in the most plucking, delightful way I could imagine. Hands down, oh my gosh, this is one of my favorite conversations that I've gotten to have on this show ever. So I really hope you enjoy. Ariana, I am just so delighted to have you on Plucking Up. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Liz. I so love your podcast, the ideas behind it. Delighted to be with you. Well, for those of our listeners, I just can't imagine that there are very many of them. But for those who are like, who are we interviewing today? Will you give us just like the two sentence overview of who you are today and kind of what occupies your life and mind? So who I am today is the founder and CEO of Thrive Global, the mother of two amazing daughters. And I... I'm so blessed that I'm doing every day what I love, which is helping end the stress and burnout epidemic that has been uh, so incredibly painful for so many millions of people and helping people reconnect with the place of strength, peace and wisdom in ourselves and live our lives from that place. So important. I think that you are solving one of the most relevant and interesting and pressing problems of 2020. So thank you so much for the work that you are doing. So let's go back a little bit. And we're going to go back as far as you are willing to take us. And we'd really love to hear just a little bit about who were you as a child? What did growing up look like? What was your family like? And what were kind of the earliest indicators, things that you were interested in that kind of ended up connecting to where you are today? So, Liz, I was incredibly lucky to have an amazing mother. Hmm. Even though I was brought up in a one-bedroom apartment in Athens, Greece, who without money, my parents were divorced. Uh, my mother, my younger sister and I were living together. Uh, she was just magical. Mm. And she always made us feel that we were not limited by our circumstances, that we could dream, we could um, aim for the sky, and that if we failed along the way, she wouldn't love us any less. So it was mm. a combination of unconditional loving and the motivation to go for our dreams. So she used to say failure is not the opposite of success. It's a stepping stone to success. Wow. And actually I told the story of how I got into Cambridge, which was the first kind of big milestone in my life in a podcast we do called Meditative Story. But I'll give you the quick overview and anybody who wants to find out more about it can go to Meditative Story. 
But I saw a picture of uh, Cambridge University in a magazine and told my mother, I want to go there. And I told everybody, I want to go there. And uh, my mother was the only person who said, let's find out how you can go there. Everybody else laughed at me and said, mm. don't be ridiculous. You are never going to go there. You don't speak English. We have no money. Wow. And uh, it's hard even for English girls to get into Cambridge. My mother instead found out how I could learn English. I could uh, take the certificates of education I needed, take my entrance exam, apply for a scholarship, et cetera, et cetera. To cut a long story short, it was because of that spirit that I applied and got into Cambridge. But the thing, at least, that I think is the most wonderful and most rare is the fact that she never made me feel as though getting into Cambridge was um, a make or break part of my life. Yeah. It was always, let's try that. And, you know, if you don't get into Cambridge, there will be another adventure. So, you know, so often when we want something, we feel as though if we don't get it, our very survival is at stake. And that makes it an incredibly stressful and painful process instead of making it an adventure. Wow. So many of our guests talk about their amazing mothers. <laughs> it is definitely a common thread. Just amazing women that are raising amazing people. But the way that you just described your mom is like, I have two little boys. I'm a mom of a four-year-old and a two-year-old is such mom goals to me of just like, even the fact that you use the word magical to describe her of just like creating this environment where it's like, let's do the thing. Let's shoot for it and have some fun along the way and kind of taking the stress out of it, taking the shame around failure and rejection and that is just a really, really amazing way to have your world shaped as a child. And that's so inspiring to me. Uh, and we have like a little family meditation prayer that we do every night. And and one of the lines says, there's nothing you could do that would make me love you less or more. And just kind of this idea that it's just like you're just loved. Whether or not you go on to do something amazing, whether or not you live a beautiful small life, as long as you're doing it with integrity and with adventure and passion, you know, like we're going to be thrilled. So that, ah, I love that so much. So talk to us about entering into Cambridge as an immigrant, you know, from Greece as a, probably I'm guessing your background and experience when you looked up your first day at Cambridge and looked around at your peers, I imagine there was a sense of like, okay, I'm a little bit different in this room. Tell us about how you experienced that. Oh, absolutely. I uh, felt particularly different because my accent, which you may be hearing, Liz, <laughs> was even stronger. And at the time in England, you know, there was such snobbery around accents. Mm. And also I spoke um, learned English. So I would often use a term <laughs> which people would literally laugh at, like when I mentioned horseback riding. I literally remember people saying, well, what other kind of riding is there? You know, donkey riding. So things like that happened all the time. And when I started speaking at the Cambridge Union, the debating society, I was literally laughed at, especially because I was a terrible speaker. And I think that's kind of one of the, the stories that shows how we can get better at anything if we put our minds to it. Mm. And if we are willing 
to take micro steps towards getting better. And speaking was something I always wanted to master. I don't know why. I love the idea of moving people's hearts and minds through words. Mm. But I was not a natural born speaker. You know how some people are. And I learned the hard way. And the fact that now, you know, I can speak for an hour without notes and without any nervousness is an indication that anyone can do it. this book called Beginner's Pluck, and in it, there's a chapter called Own Your Average. And the whole concept is most of us are actually pretty average. Our skills, our inherent talent, our intellect, it's about cultivating a spirit of like, I'm going to learn, I'm going to grow. It's okay to suck for a little bit. But I will tell you this, Ariana, as I was preparing for your interview and I was reading your bio, I was like, okay, I don't think she's actually average. I think she's above average because the internet doesn't tell us any of this, right? You're like, oh, she grew up in Greece, but then she got into Cambridge as a teenager. And like, it just pretty immediately goes, you're like, okay, she was just a prodigy or she was just like so gifted and immediately good at those things. And so I was kind of like, all right, we'll dive into that because some people are above average. But I love that within the first 15 minutes, you're like, no, I was kind of bad at it first. And then what you didn't say is you went on to be president of that debate club in those, I'm guessing, four years, right? Right, which is kind of pretty (laughs) amazing (laughs) because uh, you have no idea how much I sucked when I started. (laughs) I love that. Be willing to suck for a while. That's a great motto. That's exactly what I did. I was willing to suck for a while. And then being elected president of the union was really a huge turning point because I was the first foreigner to be elected president. And so there was a lot of press and and it led to my being offered to write my first book. Wow. <laughs> and so I was planning to, and I already had gotten admitted to go to the Kennedy School of Politics at Harvard when I got this letter from a pub, an English publisher asking me if I would write a book on the views about women that I had expressed in my farewell debate as president. Hmm. And I wrote back and I said, I can't write. And he wrote back and he said, can you have lunch? (laughs) And and he took me to lunch and offered me a modest advance that kept me going for a year. And he literally said to me, listen, I'm taking a risk. He gave me 6,000 pounds. So trust me, I did I did not exactly live a royal life. Yeah. <laughs> and then he said, if you can't write, uh, I've lost 6,000 pounds, but go for it. So I did go for it. And so I published my first book at 23. And um, that was all as a result of being willing <laughs> to suck at speaking until I learned to get better and have a publisher hear me speak, et cetera, et cetera. And, You know, Liz, it comes down to one of my favorite mottos about life, which is that life is like a dance between making it happen and letting it happen. Sometimes I'm sure a lot of the type A amazing people listening to us now may think, oh, I have to make everything happen. And it's not true. When you look back on your life, you'll see how many things we didn't make happen. There were coincidences, opportunities that came to us, and we were just ready to take them and Mm. then be willing to work hard and deliver. But that takes some of the pressure off 
and moves our lives more from a sense of struggle to grace mm. and to feeling that there's more grace and more joy in our lives. Oh, I love that. That's a really beautiful thought. And yeah, that being a dance of making it happen, letting it happen, and even just that language, my motto coming into 2020, and believe me, I did not know what <laughs> what we had ahead of us in 2020. <laughs> but there's this beautiful quote, I think it's by Ram Das. It says, um, you can do it as if it's a great weight or you can do it as if it's part of the dance. Oh, and love so that. I, I just posted up all over. I was going through some really difficult things of just this reminder of like, let's dance. Either way, you have to get through it. So you might as well see it as part of the dance, part of the journey. So I do want to ask, during that period of being willing to suck, people are literally making fun of you, of just like straight up, you're not good enough. You don't belong here. What is the self-talk that was happening in your head? What was the narrative that enabled you to hear that and to say like, okay, but I'm going to keep going. Like talk to us about, you know, early 20s, late teens, Ariana's kind of inner world. Not good, Liz, not Mm. good. I had that voice that I now call the obnoxious roommate in my head. (laughs) It's so good. <laughs> you know, that um, internalized all the external criticism. But worse than that, my own negative self-talk was even worse. Mm. You know, my self-doubts, my self-judgments, tearing myself down when I made a mistake, when I spoke in a way that didn't resonate, whatever. And in fact, now that at Thrive, we've launched a mental resilience, mental health experience with Stanford called Thriving Mind. And uh, I have been able to identify what my biotype is. We, mm. we all have different biotypes. The, the Harvard professor whose brain research we based this program on, Professor Leanne Williams, has identified eight biotypes. Okay. So mine is clearly rumination. And rumination is when we ruminate over what we did or said in a way that is truly exhausting and incredibly unproductive. I mean, we could finish this conversation and I'm loving it and it's totally enjoyable. And uh, in the past, not anymore, thank God, I could finish this conversation and then in my head, go over it again and again and say, oh, you know, the way you answered that question was terrible. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Liz really understood what you meant or whatever, you know, that negative self-talk. And yes, I'm sure there's some question you asked me that I could have answered better. You know, that's always the case. Nobody's perfect. But learning from things is very different than beating ourselves up Mm -hmm. for not being some idealized version of perfection that A, doesn't exist. And B, is not really what life is about. Yeah, identifying that and then being able to, with that self-knowledge, understand how we can move forward through those negative kind of cycles that we all get stuck in. And I'm really grateful, actually. I kind of expected you. I'm I'm making all kinds of assumptions that are getting that (laughs) (laughs) that you're surprising me with. I love it. Being surprised is my favorite thing. But I'm so actually grateful that you answered that question, because even in hearing that story, I'm just like, you know what? She had this remarkable mother. She had this magical childhood. She faced all this criticism. 
criticism and somehow was just able to marry Poppins and laugh it off and like go on. But to hear that like, oh, no, you had the same struggles that most of us do, whereas that external criticism is hard. And then that gets for most of us, I think, translated into internal criticism, which is 10 times harder and more critical and more nasty than anything people would say to us. And so I appreciate that. I tell my daughters all the time, don't lose in your own fantasies. Mm-hmm. You know, make them good because we don't know. And um, I have a saying on my desk here by Montaigne, the French philosopher, that says, There have been many terrible things in my life, but most of them never happened. Isn't it remarkable how creative we are as humans? (laughs) We're so creative. Like when people are just like, I can't really dream. I'm not like creative. And I'm like, oh no, you're dreaming all of the time. It's just that all of your dreaming and creativity energy is going into worst case scenarios. But if you think about it, it's quite creative what you're doing. You are making up fantasies. We are making up fantasies very creatively. We are prolific creative writers in our own future, (laughs) but we see it and we feel it as anxiety, as doom, you know, all of these things because they're negative. And to your point, it's like, we're just making it up anyway. We might as well have a little fun with it. (laughs) (laughs) And think about something good potentially happening. Oh, that's so good. So, okay, so you got this book deal right out of college. That's really dreamy and impressive. And you went on to write, I believe it was 14 books, so many New York Times bestsellers. You're this prolific writer, which is just so remarkable. It would be really easy to hear your story and go, okay, she got this book deal out of college. And then she went on to write 14 books and everybody loved everything that she did. And she never struggled through that. Tell us a little bit about that process. And if you could dive in maybe to a moment in that journey that doesn't make the highlight real. Was there a moment? Was there a season that felt like it was marked by rejection or by failure that you can share with us? Your pluck up, if you will. Many, many, many moments. Uh, I wrote 15 books. Liz. 15. <laughs> uh, and what is absolutely wonderful is that after my 15th book, which was The Sleep Revolution, in 2016, I was very clear I was not going to write another book. And then my youngest daughter, who is an artist, a visual artist, was hit by a bike and had a terrible concussion and uh, went through two years, over two years now, debilitating pain. Wow. And wrote a book herself, which is coming out this month as an Audible original. Wow. About her experience with chronic pain and her spiritual journey as a result. So it's kind of wonderful. Your children are adorable and too young. But to see kind of uh, that you can pass the baton, the writing (laughs) baton on to a child. But for me, as you said, Liz, The first book was a big success. And then I knew that there was nothing else I had to say about the role of women. You know, I was 23 and I had said everything I knew and more. And yet every offer I had was to continue writing about the same topic. Mm. And to go back to your first theme of the podcast, which is how to find your passion and do something you love, 
it's important to say no oh, yeah. to what were actually lucrative offers to keep writing about women. But I was done wow. that topic. I mean, it's obviously extremely important throughout my life. And I've written articles and have been an advocate, etc. But that's different than writing another book. So I instead wrote a book I wanted to write about the crisis in political leadership that nobody wanted to publish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and so the book was rejected by 37 publishers, by which time I had run out of the money I had made from my first book. Wow. And I remember walking down St. James's Street in London, where I was living at the time, and going by a Barclays Bank, <laughs> And something made me go in and ask for a loan. And uh, something made the bank manager give it to me, even though I had absolutely no assets. And um, the book was finally published. It was not a success, but it allowed me to keep things together and keep writing. Oh, my gosh. Okay, there's so much there. So 37 rejections, first of all. I'm just going to say that again. <laughs> Thirty. Seven rejections. That is a lot for one human to keep going back and to keep opening the letter to keep hearing no. I know the first time we went out and looked for a loan for our business, I think it was 17 banks that rejected us. So almost double. And you kept going, obviously. I'm curious about it's that your story is really interesting because you have this additional element that you're getting rejected for this thing you want to do and you're interested in. Meanwhile, in the back of your head, you kind of have this plan B that somebody handed you. Like you kind of have this option of like, if you just go write the dang book about women, people will read it. This will be accepted. So talk to us about being like in your early 20s. And it's not like you had to keep going because you literally had no other options, right? It was like, I'm going to keep getting rejected, even though I know there's this kind of trap door I could go through that would make this a lot easier. What do you attribute? What was the brain space that you were in that made you like knock on yet another door that you knew most likely you were going to get rejected from? I feel it's something that you alluded to, which is that I love learning through everything I'm doing. Mm. And for me, leadership and how do you become a great leader, which now, of course, has been a big part of what we're doing at Thrive, helping leaders in companies build their own resilience, create a resilient culture. I was always fascinated by that. And I wanted to learn and write something new that was exciting for me. Yeah. And uh, everything we do has uh, things that are challenges. Yeah. But if we love what we're doing, if we're passionate about it, it makes such a big difference to our lives. And so I've been very lucky to write things that I was always passionate about. And then when I was done with that, I was done with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you say you're very lucky. I would argue that you were very plucky. <laughs> I would argue that you you channeled and had a really interesting grasp on what it means to do meaningful work at a really early age. And I also love that book number two still wasn't that successful. Yeah, it wasn't, no, it was not successful at all. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I think probably one of the pluckiest things was when I left the Huffington Post in 2016 to launch Thrive Global, because at the time, you know, I was running a big media company, 
incredibly successful in 18 uh, countries with hundreds of employees. And I decided that I was ready to launch something that could help people not just be aware of how we should live our lives, but change our behaviors so that we could uh, go from awareness to action. And I couldn't do that in a media company. So that was one of the hardest things, 2016, you know, leaving behind a big success to start from scratch. And, you know, there are no guarantees, as you know, when you start a new business, it may work, it may not work. Mm. There's a particular type of anxiety and stress that comes after you've achieved success. You know, it's like you built this incredible media company. It was acquired for hundreds of millions of dollars. It would have been so easy to stay in this place. Now people are kind of watching and they know who you are and they're looking and saying, you know, what's coming next? And I imagine in that position, I'm imagining because, you know, I haven't been there, that it would be so easy to let your ego and your fear of like, just try not to look stupid. Just keep your cool, ride your success, look like the media expert and master, and don't do anything that could mess up your position, your persona, you know, as like this master who created this thing that was wildly successful. And to open that up, to go back all the way to the beginning and to say like, I'm back at the beginning. I'm a beginner. I'm learning. I might fail. And now people are going to see it fail. That requires like, that's level two of pluck and kind of like that lifelong learning and that willingness. And I think it's almost like the pursuit of learning and the pursuit of just going after what you're interested in versus the pursuit of ego and perception of how successful or masterful you are that leads people to such beautiful lives of purpose and passion and in your case, real and meaningful impact for people who need it now more than ever. I think that health crisis that we're facing as a globe with mental health and connectivity and burnout, it's so significant. It's something that I'm just so surprised we're not talking more about. And I know you guys are really changing the game in that. But what a gift that the thing that is interesting to you happens to be something that's making the world a lot better and brighter and more hopeful and healthy for so many other people. So we're so grateful for you and for your pluck and for your time with us here today. Liz, thank you so much. And I'm so grateful for you and for what you are doing and how many people you are helping along the way be more fearless, take more risks and uh, follow their own passions. Well, oh my gosh, Ariana Huffington, the queen of pluck, who's willing to suck. (laughs) There we go. We just made up Ariana Huffington's motto for her, her life motto. Maybe I should just go ahead and send that to her. The queen of pluck, not willing to suck. TM. I love that story. I love the story of, frankly, being willing to suck and getting back at it. I love that she faced so much rejection, 37 rejections. But what's more impressive to me is that, like, she was getting rejected for this thing that she deeply believed in. Meanwhile, she had a fallback. Like, she had this thing that she knew she could do and get paid for. But she had to bring this new thought and this new idea into the world. Wow. I really hope that you guys enjoyed that episode as much as I did. 
You guys, if you did like the episode, would you subscribe? rate, review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm so grateful to be back in the saddle with you here in 2021. This podcast was made possible by my amazing producers at Human Group Media. For updates and announcements about the show, you can visit lizbohannon.co or you can follow me on Instagram at lizbohannon. You can email me at liz at lizbohannon.co. You can also follow my producers and find out about some amazing other podcasts that they produce as well at Sincerely Human or Human underscore Media on Twitter. All right, you guys, that's all for now. We'll catch you again in the next episode. And until then, stay plucky. Stay plucky.